0: Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs.
1: And I'm Alan Murabayashi.
0: Alan, I see that Photo Shelter is hosting a very exciting webinar this month. Uh, it'll be a conversation with the founder of the database and collective Black Women Photographers, Polly Irangu, along with photographers Dee Dwyer and Alexis Hungley. Um, they'll be discussing how photography and the images that are published in the media. Um, generally impact culture, uh, people's worldview, and their sense of self and uh, our sense of self.
1: Yeah, I'm really, uh, really excited about it. It's, uh, on February 19th, it's free to register. Polly, you know, she's, she's a 26-year-old woman who created Black Women Photographers in July 2020, which now feels like a decade ago.
0: <laughs> it does just in terms of our weird timing and also how much it has really blown up it and really grown.
1: Has. Well, you know, to her, to her credit, she was out there very early on, uh, you know, asking for donations in order that um, literally black photographers around the world could apply for grants, for example. So she would say it mm-hmm. costs $25 to apply for this grant, but I know a lot of people can't afford that. Who can help these people out? And she was just saying, you know, uh, Venmo me money and I'm going to distribute it. And a lot of people just thought it was, you know, cool. You know, and it, like half of me said, uh, but what are the tax implications and how do we really know whether she's going to donate the money? And then the <laughs> other half of me was like, you know what, this is how we need to do it nowadays. If, if you find yeah. someone you can trust. And yeah. they have a good cause and they act as the conduit and, you know, tax implications be damned and, you know, we'll let her figure that out on her own. Um, <laughs> but it was so cool to see how many people sort of rallied around her efforts. And, you know, she's 26 year old uh, photographer uh, and she's also a digital content editor for uh, the NPR's The Takeaway show. So she's kind of right in the heart of everything that's going on with media and an active photographer. Um, and I'm really, really excited to hear that conversation.
0: Definitely. She has got a lot going on between black women photographers, her full-time job at The Takeaway. She's also a, a photographer herself and a writer. Plus, she's always busy on Twitter coordinating <laughs> no. talks and stuff. They recently had Pete Souza on and interviewed I him. I saw that. Super cool.
1: Super cool. There was a, a, a cool article in The Loop Uh, entitled Disrupting the Myth that Black Women Photographers are Hard to Find. It's an interview with Polly. Uh, Just wonderful insight. Uh, We should also mention the two other photographers that will be joining Polly that day, Dee Dwyer and Alexis Hunley. Dee Dwyer is a Washington, D.C.-based photographer, um, and she calls herself the visual voice of the people and really focused on documentary photographer as it relates to kind of humanity, if you will. And Alexis is based in L.A., She does a lot of storytelling to celebrate uh, the beauty and complexity of living as a human. Um, So I think, you know, this group of people has done a lot with looking at community and documenting the lives of people, particularly uh, black people in in the United States. And I think there's been a lot of uh, conversation and thought, you know, since the George Floyd protests and the rise of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests last summer regarding Who's capturing the photos, and then how are they received by the audiences? Um, mm. And so, whether you whether you believe in this idea of consent for the photographer or not, because people get really, really tripped up on that, I do think sure. we can all agree that once the photographer is out of the, once the photo is out of the photographer's hands, people will react in many, many different ways, and perhaps the photographer needs to be aware of that. a a photograph can be co-opted in a certain way. And so what are the implications of of taking and publishing those photos? So once again, February 19th, it's free. You can sign up on photoshelter.com. We'll have that link uh, to sign up and all the other links that we talk about on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com.
0: I also just want to mention that Black Women Photographers is currently having a Black History Month print sale that will go on through February um, prints range between 50 and $210 depending on the size of the print. Um, and honestly, it's some really beautiful work.
1: Sarah, did you, uh, happen to watch the Bowl yesterday?
0: <laughs> I didn't. I watched the <laughs> halftime show and then I left the room.
1: <laughs> I, I gotta be, I, you know, I turned it on. I, I have CBS all access, which is their streaming uh, product. And, um, they were having bugs at the beginning of the broadcast. Oh, really? So I couldn't get on there. And I was like, ah, do I really need to watch it this year? Because I wasn't really interested in it. I watched a little bit of the first quarter, and then I just kind of turned it off. Um, But of course, millions of people watch it. And of course, Mm. every year they try to outdo themselves. There's a a pretty interesting interview with Max Wolfson, who's the director of photography for North America for Getty Images, uh, on the website fansided.com. And he said that during a typical Super Bowl, uh, Getty Images will usually have about 14 photographers, and they'll take about 100,000 photos, edit Oof. that down to a few thousand to deliver to their customers. But this year they scaled back, so they're only going to have 40 to 50,000 photos. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, the scale of what they do is, is just sort of mind-blowing.
0: Well, there was definitely some great images that came out of Getty, obviously, of course. Um, but there was also some really bad <laughs> <laughs> images. I was, I was disappointed to see some of just the low-quality images of the weekend. Okay, I'm, I'm only here for weekend content, just yeah. FYI, about the Super Bowl. Um, this particular one was taken by Kevin Cox, who took a, a, a slew, a ton of them, during the entire uh, game. But the images of the weekend, not great. And I don't know why. It's just like the quality is bad. It's yeah. noisy. It's crunchy. I don't know what was going on. Well,
1: I don't know the details uh, about the Super Bowl, but we've talked about Getty's coverage of the Olympics in the past. And in those situations, the photographers are shooting tethered. So there's literally an Ethernet cable going to their camera. They shoot JPEG. And then every single image that, that they take is sent to a photo editor who does a quick edit and then throws it out on the wire. So the mm. photographer is not selecting which images are in focus or not, he or she doesn't even know like what the editors have have selected. So in fairness to Kevin, you know, he's out there early in the morning to get positions and get set up. He's probably wearing a mask. He's shooting all of this stuff. Right. And then this image that's like slightly blurry (laughs) gets thrown up on the wire and it makes him look bad. But, you know, it's not it's really not his fault. (laughs)
0: No, of course. He, he had some other great images as well, um, I, which I'm looking at. And honestly, I can't even describe what's going on because I don't know football. <laughs> <laughs> but I see that there's a ball hitting one of the men in the red helmet's head. <laughs>
1: I looked at the Getty Images site and uh, there are 3,313 images associated with Super Bowl uh, 55. So they got their forty to 50,000 photos down to about 3,000. So great job, Max Wolfson and staff over at Getty Images. Fantastic. I was also kind of intrigued. You know, there were so many press releases. It was, it was basically the media picking up on the same press release. But the NFL was talking about all the different cameras and all the different camera views they were setting up. And one of the things that always caught my eye was the development of the NFL Pylon camera. So, since you don't know football, I guess I'll describe it for you. The, you know, they're trying to get <laughs> the ball into the end zone. And mm-hmm. the end zone is, is in, in part, demarcated by these orange pylon uh, things at the on, on the line of the end zone. And okay. a few years ago, they decided to put some cameras into the, the pylons. Smart. Uh, and over the years, they've sort of developed, you know, initially started with one camera in there. And now I think there's like four to eight cameras per pylon, something ridiculous, the number of of cameras that they're trying to get in there. Uh, I think the general consensus is you can't really use it to make the call on whether the ball crossed the line, but it sure is fun for fans to see that viewpoint. You know, it's like low, right on the the line. You can Mm slow-mo it. But, you know, the camera itself is very, very small, so the quality Mm. isn't quite the same as, you know, the the $100,000 or $250,000 cameras that they're using up in the stands. Sure. The other thing that the NFL tried, based on some success or experiments that Fox Sports had during the regular season, is they used uh, the Sony Venice camera, which is a full-frame 6K video camera in the end zone, Uh, with very, very shallow depth of field. And so the shot is really reminiscent, if you play like Madden video games, uh, it's very reminiscent of this like video uh, game-esque point of view. Um, And the problem is that the depth of field is very, very shallow. We're talking a couple inches, you know, with the lens that they're using and at the aperture that they're using. And when I was looking on social media, the reaction from most photographers was, they're missing the focus. The guy can't mm. hold the focus because it was literally a guy that had a steady cam rig with the camera on it and he's trying to pull focus while he's moving around the players. And the players are kind of moving back and forth because they're celebrating. And mm. so in, in the couple clips that I saw, like Rob Gronkowski catching the two-yard touchdown, there's like a couple seconds where he's out of focus, then there's a couple seconds where he's in focus and then he, you know, the camera operator loses the focus again. So I'm not quite sure that that was the most effective use of technology. Mm -hmm. I do think the overhead cameras and the trolley cams, you know, the ones that are moving with the game action are really great because to me that gives you, it just, it's following the action better than it has in the past. and.
0: Yeah. And the, the, I did see clips of that. Those. those can move so fast yeah. and smooth. It's like, wow. Okay. Well, cool. and It's like a
1: movie. if you remember from the Olympics, you know, they've done that in, in track and field. So you'll see like Usain Bolt on the hundred meter dash with a camera following him and you can see how, how much faster he is than everyone else. Mm. And that to me is a very, very, you know, innovative use of technology. But to me, I have to ask with that, uh, Sony Venice end zone cam, whether the technology really enhances the viewer experience or whether the novelty of using that technology is kind of a gimmick. And hmm. for me, the pylon cam and the end zone cam, they're kind of gimmicky. I think so. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you mentioned it's
0: supposed to kind of imitate uh, like a Madden yeah. game. Like now is life imitating Madden games? Is that?
1: Yeah. Which is weird, right? Yeah, It's just yeah. weird. But, you know, to me, they, they always like to say using full frame with shallow depth of field is more cinematic. And when I actually think of great uh, movies and cinematography and great DOPs, shallow depth of field does not make a cinematic look. And I think a lot of times, you know, when these lens reviews come out and, and photographers are like, oh, look at the bokeh on that lens. It's so great. And then when you look at magazine covers, nobody ever shoots that shallow. Mm-hmm, you know? True. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know. What? But you brought you brought up the weekend with that with the halftime show. So, what did you think about that camera work?
0: Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I was about to say best camera work of the entire show. So, <laughs> Aka the only part I watched um, was of the weekend when he was in that like fun house of mirrors and lights and the camera is kind of fish, a little bit (laughs) fishbowl-eyed, and it's just going back and forth, and he's running around with it, and it almost looks as though maybe he's attacking the cameraman. It is, I walked in, and I was like, okay, now I feel nauseated, Yeah. but then today (laughs) on the internet, everyone was making memes with that footage, and that's when it obviously clicked. I was like, Oh, The weekend. Well, I mean, I knew he was a genius. His songs are wonderful. But I was like, he is a genius. Whoever directed this oh, is a genius. Oh, so
1: you think he knew it was going to blow up.
0: I didn't know. I, I know. I'm ashamed to say that I didn't realize that, that when I watched it live, I just thought, wow,
1: I feel ill. <laughs> well, I was trying to figure out exactly what happened. So I, I watched when they enter that sort of fun house of mirrors and lights. It looked to me like he reached forward for a selfie stick. And if you look at the actual footage, his left arm, he's got his mic in the right hand, and his left arm is extended for the entire section. And then Mm -hmm. at the end of that song, it looks like he hands off the stick to a camera operator who continues to use that camera.
0: So I
1: think that's what happened, but I'm not Mm -hmm. entirely sure. And I was looking in the reflections of the mirror, but they're all... They're all slightly curved, so you don't really get a clear shot of what's going on.
0: that would make sense. Yeah. utilizing kind of the selfie stick into a uh, into a performance show like that.
1: There was a great parody by a guy named Max Goodrich who cut together that clip with a with fake footage of the cameraman. <laughs> so yes, <he has, laughs> you know whoever's helping him make this video has a has a red sleeve on because the weekend who's in case you don't know him, he's a pop performer, but he wears a red suit often. So in Max's parody video, his camera operator has the uh, a red suit arm that's like yanking back and forth the camera. It is very, very funny. We'll have that link as well on the blog, but I love that. I love that. It's great. You know, the other thing was a lot of people who didn't know The weekend and, and sort of this performance art that he's been going through for the past year with the head bandages, he, he said uh, to Variety in an interview, the significance of the entire headbandage headbandages is reflecting on the absurd culture of Hollywood celebrity and people manipulating themselves for super superficial reasons to please and to be validated. I understand that if you don't know the weekend and, and that he's been doing videos with the headbandages on for like a year now where you you would have been really confused with the army of people wearing red coats and having what looked almost like jock straps on their head.
0: Yeah, they did kind of look like that.
1: Well, you gotta have the the spectacle dance number. You know, ever since Beyonce did the huge army of people with Bruno Mars a couple of years ago.
0: Oh man. And then Shakira
1: and J Lo had their big, you know, group of dancers up there. You you gotta have a dance piece. So I think the producers of the Super Bowl are looking of how to do that. But while I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, you gotta keep these performers masked up. Just probably for protocol reasons, right? And if you're gonna mask them for up, sure. you might as well put them in in the headbandage mask. And if you look at it, the mask sort of looks like there's a N n ninety five under it.
0: It does, right? yes. It do. when so, I looked at the stills, I was
1: like, Oh, yeah. Everyone who's critical about the costume choice, just remember we're living in the age of COVID and there's some sort of meta message going on with that. But you know, I thought his singing, I thought the vocal performance is great. I love the weekend, so Yeah. It is what the it is. The song
0: sounded good. I was into it. (laughs) Um, Something we have eagerly awaited, the Biden White House flicker is live, filled, I know, filled with 72 images thus far as of today, um, spanning from Inauguration Day on the 20th. Um, And there's a lot of great work. And it's featuring three photographers, two of which we've talked about on the show, Adam Schultz, um, and Lawrence Jackson, who is Kamala's official photographer, um, and also Chandler West, who worked as a photo editor for the Biden campaign with Adam. What do you think of the photos, Alan?
1: It it just feels like we're back to normal again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I know that Pete and his photo office started the Flickr feed, so it's not like there was this long lineage of using Flickr to deliver uh, presidential photos. But I think we got so used to eight years of having great photography be a part of uh, the office of the President of the United States. And when Trump came into office and Sheila Craighead took over, it 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 just felt like a real disappointment because the quality of photo and the access that Sheila was given was just not the same. Like she clearly didn't have the same relationship with Trump that Sousa had to Obama, Trump clearly didn't want to use photos in the way that Sousa and Obama wanted to use photos. And I think Schultz is taking us back to kind of a Sousa-esque look at the presidency, which just feels, it feels like we can know the president, you know, and, and, and you, you've said in previous podcasts, you know, when other photographers had shot, uh, president Trump, it made Mm -hmm. him feel more personable.
0: Yeah. It did. It did, whereas the official White House photog- yeah photographs of him absolutely did not. You know, one thing obviously that is so glaring in all of these images is the space between everybody. I mean, they are really yeah. they're doing it. They're abiding by the rules. I am happy to see it. But in terms of a photo, it doesn't make for great <laughs> I
1: photos. Mean, no. And the know? and the masks, you know, they're all wearing masks and you don't see a full facial expression. Um, yeah. And so it, it, I, I felt I was happy to see these images, and a small part of me also just felt fatigue, like COVID fatigue. Mm-hmm. Like, man, come on, can we get over this already? But, you know, this is the era that we're living at, and when people look at these photos in 50 years, 100 years, they'll be like, oh, yeah, remember the pandemic of 2020 the COVID-19, you know?
0: Yep. I'll say, how could you forget?
1: But it's February eighth already, and they only have the f- <laughs> the first weeks of uh, of photos going up to January twenty seventh. So, Adam, get on it. Let's go.
0: I know, get on <laughs> it. It's also a pretty tight edit. I gotta say, yeah, yeah. which is good. Anyway,
1: lastly, today we celebrate uh, the life and death of Ricky Powell, who many people referred to as the fourth Beastie Boy. He he was actually not a Beastie Boy. He was a photographer for the Beastie Boys and uh, just an interesting, you know, born and bred New York character. Uh, There's Mm. a piece in New York Magazine. uh, There's a quote where he says, nor was he a paparazzo chasing down celebrities. He worked somewhere in between the rapperazzo of the village he called himself. So he covered (laughs) a lot of hip hop culture uh, and became friends with a lot of the old school uh, people, you know, in part because of his connection with the Beastie Boys. He was in with LL Cool J, Run DMC.
0: He was super cool. Uh, and in fact, like the only time he really left New York was to go tour with the Beastie Boys and Run DMC.
1: You know, this this New York mag piece says Powell occupied a rare position as a white guy who was able to move within the largely black hip hop culture. Much of that access can be attributed to his connection with the BC boys, outliers who trace a similar path. But Powell possessed a certain sincerity that people seem drawn to, a quality Powell himself joked he never fully understood. And LL Cool J says, you know, partially in jest, I was never sure that Ricky was white. So it's just cool, you know. That rapport really comes out in the photography, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in my read. And there's a great, great photo of Run DMC, near the Eiffel Tower, uh photo that I just love. There's another great photo of the Beastie Boys crossing Charles Street in Soho, which is kind of a, a visual play on the Beatles' Abbey Road photo by Ian McMillan. But, <laughs> you know, they're, they, they're having these, like, breakdancy poses, and one of them is on a skateboard. So it's just like this, you know, anti-establishment, 1980s version, hip-hop version of the Beatles crossing the, the road, which is great. And then he has a photo of Debbie Mazar, Sandra Bernhard, and Madonna back in the you know <laughs> clubbing days. just the intimacy is like very palpable
0: totally. I think he's the kind of photographer that makes it look so easy, and when he talks about the work, he talks about it with such ease and it's just kind of like he stumbled into it you know he he had a photo- he got a camera um, a Minolta that's what he shot with um from an ex that had like left it at his house, he said that in some interview, and was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna start shooting." And I think photographers like him that are a po- documenting their own social circle um, and the world that they just inhabit and and live in, those type of photographers are so important because when I think about this era, you know, I also think of the photographer Martha Cooper, who in her own right was like phenomenal and amazing. But she was approaching hip-hop culture from, like, a photojournalistic standpoint, whereas Ricky was, like, a part of it. And there's definitely a difference there, you know?
1: The Los Angeles Times says his photography style, recognizably a product of hip-hop itself, a loose, spontaneous means of seizing the moment with available tech. This point-and-shoot sprezzatura chronicled (laughs) a moment when modern artists, actors, musicians, and intellectuals mingled. And I had to look up sprezzatura because... I'm not a literature or Italian speaker and it it means a studied carelessness. So it's like making something look really, really easy that ends up being pretty, you know, complex or has a lot of depth to it. And I think that it's very true. There's a authenticity to the way that he shoots, which, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. uses authenticity, but he he really has it.
0: Yeah. I think his style um, of photography while it might just look happenstance, has really influenced a whole generation of photographers.
1: He was featured in a 2013 documentary called Street Easy, along with so many great street photographers. And when you, when you think about like great street photographers and think of the images and compare it to what Ricky was doing... There's a frenetic style to what he's doing. It feels less intentional because he's like just he's shooting in the moment. He's not. He doesn't. He doesn't feel like he's composing every shot. He's just capturing the mm. moment. Um, and, oh man,
0: I need to see. that. Yeah,
1: it's cool. You know, they 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 interview about twelve different street photographers: Bruce Gilden, Joel Merowitz, um, and it's just it's shocking how different his photography is from from those guys. And he says in that documentary. He says, hustling is like actually my main occupation. And his handle on Instagram is the lazy hustler. Awesome. And he talks about, you know, how he got into photography. And he says, there's no reason I shouldn't have had a camera because all I had to do was, was this. And he, he puts the camera over his shoulder and he, he's just trying to convey like, there's no excuse to never have a camera and, and be able to <laughs> shoot what's going on around you.
0: Yeah, and he also talked about how later on he didn't really transition to digital. I think he owned one digital camera and then his iPhone. <laughs>
1: yeah, he said in an interview with Shift uh, Japan, you know, he talks about using that Minolta AF2 point-and-shoot camera, and then the interviewer asks him, did you move into digital photography? And he goes, yeah, I use whatever people give me. My fellow photographers <laughs> recent, recently gave me an SLR from 2006, but I don't use that too big. I like easy pictures with cameras that fit in my clothing and pull out to just capture the moment. So, you know, he was a self-taught photographer. I love the fact that he doesn't get hung up on gear uh, mm-hmm. and he's just interested in taking the photo with whatever he has in his pocket and, and having it be pocketable seems like the key feature of, you know, desirable feature of a, of a camera.
0: Yeah, absolutely. uh. What a genius.
1: There was a, a documentary specifically about him that premiered at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival called Ricky Powell, The Individualist. Uh, I looked at the trailer. It looks, it looks pretty cool. He he was a character that wasn't without trouble. Um, the Times obit, you know, kind of mentions how he he grew up with the BC boys, but in the mid-90s, the BC boys got more mature about what they were doing, um, kind of focused more on social causes and Ricky just kind of stayed the same and he had a drug addiction and you know he's a complicated character
0: Mm, he died of heart failure just this week so sad
1: very sad so R.I.P. to a a wonderful documentarian of hip hop culture in the New York scene from the 80s and 90s Ricky Powell fantastic photography I love his outlook on, on photos doesn't over intellectualize the process of taking photos and yet comes up with a shot. What more could you ask? Uh all the links we talked about today you can find at our blog on blog.photoshelter.com. Hit that subscribe button, leave us a comment. You can always tweet at photoshelter to leave us a comment as well. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.